to drive with your son and finish third on Father's Day and be on the winner's rostrum. It was magnificent. Steve wanted to drive. The only reason he did the film was so he could drive a racing car. It wasn't he wanted to make a movie about it. He wanted to race at the mall. I'm never happier than when I'm sitting in the cockpit of a car, particularly that car. Anybody would adore it, you know, raw power. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd, brought to you by Chubb Insurance, expert insurers of your most valued possessions, established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jody Kidd. I really hope that you've all been keeping well. Hopefully you've had a chance to get outside a little bit more since the last podcast. As we speak, we're still recording this from our own homes rather than in a studio. But thanks to this super microphone kindly sent to me by the lovely people at Chubb, you can now hear me crystal clear. Thank you so much for all your amazing and fantastic feedback after our first episode when we spoke to the restorer Simon Thornley. It really is appreciated. If this is the first time you've tuned into the Chubb Interviews podcast series, greetings, classic car fans. By the way, where were you for the first episode? You can, of course, download it after you've heard this one. I mean, what else is there to do at the moment? In this series, we talk to fellow classic car lovers, exploring the personal stories of the people who inhabit this wonderful world. There are millions who haven't been able to drive or enjoy their favorite cars. So we're hoping that this series is filling the void during these times. Now, I cannot tell you how excited I am about our special guest today. I think the word legend is thrown around far too much nowadays, but this guy is the genuine article. We will shortly be joined by none other than the racing legend. Yes, I am going to use that word again. Mr. Derek Bell, MBE, one of the true greats of motorsport. But before we speak to Derek, I think it's only fair that I allow this week's co-host, James Elliott from Octane magazine, to get a word in first. James, how are you? I'm very well, Jodie, and how are you? Yeah, very good. I mean, it's the same thing, but getting more used to it, I have to say. I'm enjoying being at home. Not the same at all for me. It's all changed. (laughs) I've moved from the dining table to the coffee table. My goodness. Life is all about a bit of variety. It is indeed. Left my passport, though, so I'm not sure if I can go back. (laughs) Right now, my love, um, I've slightly spoiled the surprise by uh, trailing our special guests already. But honestly, I am so excited. And number one thing is he really rarely gives interviews these days. So this is, you know, we're really, really lucky to get him. Um, So I want you, in your own words, can you just tell me how much of a ledge you think Derek Bell is? This man is without question one of the greatest racing drivers this country has ever produced. And we are talking in the very, very top table, not just his achievements at Le Mans, but lots of others as well, as we will discover as we speak to him today. But an endurance racing legend. And endurance racing is is a completely different discipline and takes a completely different mentality. I cannot say enough great stuff about him as a human being as well as as a racing driver. 
Have you met him? I have. Whether he remembers me as much as I remember him <laughs> would be an interesting issue. But yeah, I first met Derek maybe 25 years ago. He's always a very, very charming person. Yeah, I was uh, extremely lucky to be part of the Jaguar Heritage team to race the Mille Miglia, and he was in one of the cars. So um, very proud to say that I've been part of one of his teams doing wow. an endurance race. He's extraordinary. Right, that is enough of us. It's time to say hello to our special guest, Mr. Derek Bell. Um, Derek, hi, how are you? I'm pretty good, considering how far away from you guys I am. Where are you actually talking from? Boca Raton in Florida. It's 95 degrees or something. So it's, Ooh, wow, super it's hot. It's quite and sunny, sunny, but it's not humid yet, so it's not so bad. And we don't live in a caravan, so it's quite no. pleasant. You know, <laughs> All okay with the lockdown and what's going on? Everyone's kind of safe and well and family's good? Yes, it's remarkable, actually, yeah. This part of Florida, this sort of warm Palm Beach, West Palm down to Miami, it's in a, in a different lockdown to the rest of Florida. You know, everything's, you know, pretty good, actually. The last time we saw each other was um, doing the Mila Milia, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was somewhat brief. It was quite interesting because, bless his heart, losing dear old Sterling the other week sort of oh, highlighted the Mila Milia. And uh, on that trip, because the only time I ever did it, it's called the Daily Sports Car, I think. They had done a feature on, on my experience on the classic. And, of course, I finished the rally, and this bloke had it all written down, and he reprinted it with a little bit of extra from me now about Sterling. And um, the amazing part of that Mille Mille was that on the very last day, I'd be pulled over the line to finish in the C-type Jag, which is one of the life's experiences. I, in a way, I don't want to go through again because no. it was a bit of a, <laughs> my navigator wasn't, if you know what I mean. And um, we pulled across the line. And as I stopped on the block to finish, uh, Sterling mm. and Susie walked across the road. And that, to me, was quite an amazing moment. But at the time, it was, but even more so now, of course. I have to say that it's one of my proudest moments is that I was in, in the Jaguar team yes. with you. Yes, indeed. Um, not that we really saw each other a lot, I suppose, because you <laughs> well, were we in were... a completely different group. So, um, well, we were perpetually lost. Though. I think you were getting lost a few times, weren't you, yes. through yes. your co-pilot? I've never um, in my life had a problem with my co-driver, I bet, no. you know, because I never had to sit with him. When Jackie or, you know, Jochen or whoever, well, they were in the car, I was obviously having a cup of tea somewhere. Yeah. But in this case, I was there with this guy. We said, we don't need a route book. We don't. What's that book for? I said, oh, that's to show us the width, our direction. Oh, we don't need that. It's oh, about my five goodness. Miles. He said, just follow the others. I said, yeah, but we don't know where they're going. Anyway, I that can't believe how it that happened. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. but I mean, just, and as you said, to cross the line and to have Sterling there, it's a very magical race. And, um, yes. and I think what we did it in. Three days or something, but yeah, for something Sterling, like that, Sterling to do yes. it in 10 hours, you, yeah, you, you really I still take can't your hat quite off. understand that. I, no, can't, I, I can't fathom that one out because we were going like lunatics. And, yeah. But anyway, never mind. It never was still mind. A it, wonderful uh, achievement. It was, it was. And I, I just, as I said, I, I dine out on the fact that uh, I, I was in a team with you. Um, right. So in our first episode, my love, we all discussed that we had a certain family member or a relative or someone close that really kind of helped spark our love and our passion for cars or classic cars or racing cars. So was there someone like that for you? Actually, no. My dear old dad, bless him, um, because my parents split up, actually, after the Second World War, you know, so I was like three or four. But my dear old dad never drove till he was about 45. 
So I didn't get much out of that. But the one thing that did affect me was the fact that Goodwood was only five miles away from Pagham, where we lived. And also I drove tractors from the age of nine on my stepfather's farm. So I think it was probably him if there is a person, it helps me. And he was such a magnificent part of my early career when he helped me so much. The strange thing was I did go to the Jim Russell Racing Driver School. I, I did it all rather late. I didn't go there till I was 20, something like that. And I remember coming back one day, having it sort of finished. And the, I told the old man that I'd actually done really rather well. And Jim was ex sort of excited about how well I'd gone. Mm -hmm. He had his newspaper and put his paper down. He said, you prove to me you have the ability and I'll help you. And with that, really? I was on my own. So although I, having said he helped me, he actually told me to get off my bike and do it. And so I did. And so the first year I did with a friend of mine called John Penfold from Arundel with a Lotus 7. You know, I was 24 by the time I sat and did a race. And that was because of John, not because of my dear old stepfather. That he came to those early races at Goodwood and Silverstone mm -hmm. and Aintree and places like that because he was so intrigued by car racing and he loved car racing. Were you doing it as your full-time job or were you kind of just doing it on the weekends? No, 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 no. I mean, none of us did it. I mean, at that level, we were just club racers, which right. is where it all starts. It's still one hell of a leap, especially starting at the age you did, to go from a bit of club racing in a Lotus 7 at Goodwood mm. to becoming a professional racing driver. It takes a lot, a lot of determination, but it takes some help as well. How do you make that leap? You know, it's so strange. I know you read about it and you look at it like you are and you go, Blimey, how the hell did he get where he did in four years? Because I got from a Lotus 7 to being in the Ferrari Formula 1 team in four years. Now, wow. amazing. If you, if you look at today, they do it like that, but they started in karting, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't know why it was. I think we all did it a different way. I mean, there were lots of Formula 1 drivers, if you know what I'm saying. There was, there was a gridful, and um, we all came up a different way. I read about Peter Gethin and people that were my compatriots in those days. And I read their stories and see how they started. I realize that a lot of them started a lot earlier than I did. If It's like being in school. If you're a year behind, you stay a year behind because you haven't got that experience. And, uh, you know, I sort of would be racing H. Pete, but only when I read his book did I realize he'd already been racing three years in the and like Brian Redman had in A35s and David Hobbs had. I was in a Lotus 7 and had that good first year and my first win at Goodwood and um, first win of my life and in my first race. So it sort of, that meant a heck of a lot to me, but it didn't help spur me on the way. I mean, nobody came and said, my God, you've got such a talent. The only guy that said actually I was good was Jim Russell, pulled me out from the group one day and he just said, in front of everybody, there's sort of 10 or 12 other drivers, he just said, you have got a great future. He said, I guarantee within a year, you'll be in a factory team, which he meant in Formula 3. Um, which is where all the way I was looking, I went looking at Formula One. I had no idea that I'd ever be that good. These days, a racing school founder driver had talent, you know, that had got a sponsor to sponsor him to promote the driving school as well. Because Emerson was there after me and he got on a little better. But not many of us that came through Jim Russell that did well were promoted by Jim Russell School or anybody within it. Formula One, I mean, to go straight to Ferrari, that must be one hell of an experience. And, and also, did you go out to Italy to see Enzo himself? I was in Formula 3 for sort of two and a half seasons. In 67, I drove with Peter Westbury, Felday Engineering, and he put three really good Brabham's together. I won my first race. I won the Boxing Day Brands race in 66, and then carried on with that car through 67. 
and won eight races in the European sort of championship, which I think was pretty good at that time. At the end of that, it was like, well, what are you going to do? Well, we've got to get out of this. We've got to go up to Formula Two. So uh, we looked around. I couldn't get sponsorship because in that time, the sponsors had just started appearing. You had Gold Leaf, Team Lotus or whatever it was at that time. But of course, you know, who was I? I was this little plonker from Pagham. And it was, you know, <laughs> I wasn't really going anywhere much. And uh, anyway, eventually, the old man and I went to the bank, borrowed 10,000 quid, and we went out and bought a Formula 2 car and two Formula 2 engines or put deposits down on them. And, and we went from there. And uh, after three races, you know, I got the call from Enzo. Mm, and wow. actually, I, all, I also had a call from John Wire to drive the GT40. I also had a contact from Colin Chapman because Jimmy Clark very tragically had died in my first race at Hockenheim. And I'd been with him the night before having a cup of tea with Ian Graham, literally the three of us with my father at the hotel. I had breakfast the next morning with Graham and Jimmy, and we all three drove to the track. They drove me because we were in a small, my team was so small and they'd already gone. And that was wow. and that was it. And then did the race with Jimmy. And of course, he had his accident. And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a stunner, really. And from yeah. that, of course, Colin Chapman was quite keen on me driving so he had talked to me about driving the indy car which thank god i didn't because mike spence got killed in it at indy that year so all in all it was like i steered and sort of dodged the bullets quite a lot during that season but i did have the offer and then also from the cooper formula one team john cooper's team wanted me mm -hmm. to race formula one and i had to make the decision did i go to do formula two at ferrari initially but i knew it would lead to formula one if i was good enough Mm -hmm. Or did I go to Cooper, which I knew would be a kiss of death as far as like, having a good car was concerned. And so that was it. I went down to Monza, had the test drive overnight, stayed down at Maranello. The next day went to the factory and was being shown around the factory. And there was nobody there. Everybody was, it was actually everybody was on strike. They said it was a national holiday. But I realized, <laughs> I realized that very quickly in Italy, any day they had a strike, they called it a national holiday. Right. And uh, that, while I was walking down this amazing site, I have to explain it, but as I walked down the sort of avenue within the, the factory, you know, the two plus two Ferraris, the GTB4s, and, you know, all his sports road cars are sort of at shoulder height where they are assembled and then they bolted everything up. And nobody was there, just me and this guy from the factory. And then round the corner at the end walks the old man with his, you know, raincoat over his shoulder, didn't have his arms in it, and his tinted glasses and his immaculate hair. And the guy with me said, oh, here comes El Commandatore now. He's the one on the left as if I had any doubt as to which one Enzo was. And that was how I met him. And it was this amazing sight. I say it quite often, Daryl Michael Schumacher, with all his wonderful victories, mm. he never met Enzo. And to me, you know, yeah. meeting Enzo was something unique and spectacular. And, and we didn't do it for the money anyway. We did it because we wanted to win races, you know. Was he a really big influence throughout this whole period? Oh, yeah, I think he was to everybody. I mean, he was Enzo, for goodness sake. I mean, yeah. he was, I mean, he was the biggest name, wasn't he? I mean, it, it was more difficult to get to see Enzo than it was the Pope. It was astonishing. He had a presence like nobody else. I mean, he, he didn't suffer fools. And I'm not saying I was not a fool, but he sort of had this air about him of, mm. of being sort of very important. They used to phone me up and say, you'll have dinner tonight with El Commandatore, you know. And I was staying at the hotel in town between tests or races or something. And the old man would pick me up in his two plus two Ferrari and we'd go off sort of 50 miles for dinner God, and we'd walk special. into restaurants and he'd have his arm on my shoulder as we went in. I would go to let him in, you know, being a gentleman myself. Mm. And he would make sure I went in in front of him like his protege. It was quite astonishing. I'm very sad that I probably didn't deliver what he wanted, 
But, you know, as, as I was told five, six years ago by Mara Forgiri, who was the end chief engineer, I bet you met him at an event over here. And he said, you just sadly, Derek, you were with us at the wrong time, you know, and lots of people have been there at the wrong time. And mm. however good you are, I mean, my first Grand Prix, you know, I was on the third row of the grid next to Jackie Stewart and Denny Helms. So it wasn't shabby. And my first race in Formula Two, I got pole position at Monza. Mm. I wasn't slow, but of course, the cars weren't good enough eventually. It seems absolutely ridiculous to ask somebody who's had as much success as a racing driver as yourself about whether they've got regrets about something not working out. But, you know, as you said, you were in Formula One with Ferrari at just the wrong time, but you won Le Mans five times, which is an astonishing achievement, incredible test of endurance and speed. What was it about Le Mans that made that your metier, or was that simply, again, really good timing? It was the timing. It had to be. Why should it fall, I fall into place? I mean, there were so many good drivers out there. I never rated myself particularly. I mean, I won a few races here and there in F3 and F2 and so on and so forth. But the one thing I wanted to be, you see, was a Formula One driver. And we all did. We all went through racing to be a Grand Prix driver as a European. And I'm sure you're all Brits, so you know what I mean. It is the ultimate. It's the top. And so when you're not a Formula One driver, you say, oh, that's a pity. What am I going to do now? As it happened, my Ferrari career went on for a year and a half. If that's the right word, career. You know, I'm back to nothing. And the old man pulled out a racing in the middle of 69 and said, the cars aren't competitive. We're stopping. So there was me, Chris Amon and Clay Regazzoni and Brambilla out of drives. I mean, there was just no drives. So we had to quit. So I just didn't know where I was going. And then I, thank God, had met this guy called Tom Wheatcroft on the Tasman series in 69. We started at Christmas or New Year 68 and then 69 with the Dinos. And it was me and Chris Amon and Jochen Rint and Piers Courage and Graham Hill and Frank Gardner and a load of Australians and New Zealanders making out the field. It was a wonderful series of seven races. But that's how I kept myself going, because those races gave me a lot of confidence. For me, it was very, very difficult. But then, and, and then in 69, it was like, what the hell am I going to do now? And then I drove the McLaren at the British Grand Prix. And then you're out, because I had, no, I had no record at the top echelon of racing. And then, thank goodness, out of the blue, you know, I had this chance to drive for John Warren in the GT40. So 69 was the doldrums, but in 70... Uh, we went to dear old Tom Wheatcroft, who I'd met on the Tasman series and got to know my stepfather very well. And Tom said, anytime you need any help, lad, I'll help you. And Tom, because you know, owns the Wheatcroft Museum. So we ended up forming Wheatcroft Racing. And that's when I went back to Formula Two. But at the same time, Jack Swatters came on and said, would I drive the Ferrari 512 at Spa, the sports car? And I did quite well. And Mr. Ferrari then calls up Jack and said, I want Derek Bell in my works car at Le Mans in 1970. And a long story there, but I ultimately drove uh, Mr. Ferrari with Ronnie Peterson, which is a wonderful experience. And then I did the United States Grand Prix for Surtees and I finished sixth, for example. And then I came second in the European Championship as well that year. So my year suddenly got better. Brilliant. So suddenly it started to sort of come around a bit. It was out of that, of course, having done Le Mans for Ferrari, that I got the opportunity to have a test drive with John Wire at Goodwood in the Porsche 917. And as you say, that was when the whole thing turned around and I ended up being the right person in the right place. And I was there at the right time. Mm. And, And out of your five wins at Le Mans, which one is the one that you treasure most, the most memorable one? 
It's really difficult because it's a strange thing. I mean, the first one, I guess, has to be in the Mirage with Jackie X and John Horsman and John Wire and the golf team. But you mentioned somebody else there who we lost recently, who yes. was very instrumental in those teams that you won in yes. and yes. perhaps doesn't get the credit he does. Can you tell us a little bit about John Horsman and what yeah. his importance was to the team? Dear Sterling passed away on the Sunday and John Horsman died on the Monday. Quite naturally, John Horsman didn't get the recognition, really, that he should have done because Sterling was such an amazing personality. John was a very interesting man. John Wire was the headmaster. I mean, you've got to realise he was the first professional real after Ferrari. I then was thrown in at the deep end with, with John Wire. And he was like the headmaster. I was at Woking one day at the wire shop and I was walking down uh, looking at the bit the cars being worked on, the 917s. Wire walked down the other way and he was on his stoop and, and walking very slowly as he shuffled. Us. He was called Death Ray by Frank Gardner. And so he was walking along and he looked across and I was wearing a bright shirt and jeans and he, and he looked across at me and he said, Oh, hello, Bell. A riot of colour again, I see. He was just like the headmaster, you know, and you go, oh, what can you say to that morning, John? <laughs> you know, you don't look so good yourself. But, um, you know, that was it. And his, the whole time with him, I, I had very intelligent conversation. Well, I tried anyway, but he was very intelligent. And that was why. And as you know, if you read about the history, I've been reading Racing in the Rain, sadly, only since John died, because, I, you know, I had it's so a marvellous book. It's a marvellous book. And, you know, when you read what went into the, the, the background of the team and how they flew here and dashed around there and went and made parts at another gear manufacturing plant in Germany to make a gear a fraction wider so it wouldn't wear out or wouldn't break at the mall. I mean, all that stuff, which I'm sure happens today. But because you're talking about a budget that John had, I think, for £100,000 for the whole year. And here you are today with zillions. And they did a heck of a job. But John Horsman, obviously, come on with John Wire for many, many years, had a lot of respect both ways. John Wire, because of the character he was, he was the boss. And John Horsman built the cars. It's straight and simple. John built the cars. And that's what he was so good at. He was meticulous. The detail, and which we've all agreed, you know, in the book, is amazing. I mean, he knows lap times that I eat. I read stuff in there about my testing one day with him that I never knew I'd, well, I remember doing it, but I didn't remember, for example, how quick I was. John wrote all this stuff. He had it all on record. <laughs> The only one thing he didn't have was when I asked him, because when we had, I had my test drive at, at Goodwood, I had the test drive with Pete Gethin and Ronnie Peterson as the other two drivers. I asked Horsman about it you know, last year at an event we did. And I said, hey, John, I said, you so good for all your records. But I said, do you know what lap times we did that day at Goodwood? And he said, no, I don't have them recorded. Now, that is a load of nonsense because... <laughs> Um, I know he recorded everything, like the temperature of the track every hour went down in the book, you know, and that sort of thing. So do you think so, that means yours were good or not as good? Well, I no, I believe, but I might have also been quicker because I was always quick around Goodwood, but who knows. Talking about other drivers, endurance racing is, is a team sport, but no yeah. member of that team is more important to you as a driver than your co-pilot, the other driver, mm. whether you're in a two-person team or a three-person team. First yeah. of all, what are you looking for? Because it might not be what people expect in the perfect person to share a car with you. And secondly, I mean, obviously you won three times with Jackie X. Who was your favourite to share a car with and, and why? Well, um, I mean, I did 26 Le Mans, so I drove with a lot <laughs> of drivers. But I mean, obviously Jackie has to be the favourite because I won more with him. 
I won two with Stuck and Holbert. So therefore they meant a lot to me. But I think the reason that Jackie sticks in my memory more than anybody is because it was just the two of us. And everybody forgets that. They always think we, you know, you talk about dear old Tom Christensen doing, you know, sort of he's won it nine times, but I bet I've done more miles at Le Mans than he has because there were two of us. But with us, I mean, we had those early days. I mean, you got in the race and John Wire said, you can't take it over 7,800, but I want you to run it to 7.7. And if you take it to a 7.8, it'll blow up. The mm. 917. I mean, if you took the 917 to eight, when I tested at Mulsanne, uh, Le Mans that time for Porsche in the long tail, and I was going down, and at the end of the weekend or the end of the day, um, walking across the paddock with Norbert Singer, and he said, So, Derek, he said, um, How many revs were you pulling? And I said, 8,100 down Mulsanne. He said, Oh, that is good because at eight, two, it blows up. <laughs> now, that Gosh. was, a, but I mean, <laughs> these days you just take it to the red light and then it's, it changes gear for you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I much. mean, everybody overlooks all that stuff. We had to drive with our fine touch. And that's why I remember so vividly John Wire talking about Pedro and he said, Rodriguez, and he said, Pedro has uh, soft hands. He said he feels it like riding a horse, you know. Yeah. Getting back to the drivers, it really was Jackie because I won my first Le Mans with him. But remember, he'd been at Ferrari with me in Formula 2 and also Formula 1. A very quiet bloke, kept himself to himself. I didn't get to know him then at all. But because I knew him in Formula 2, because I knew him in Formula 1, and then I knew him in those early days of sports cars, he was a star. He should have been a Formula 1 Grand Prix world champion in my opinion he was such a talent i mean can you imagine the way he got in the gt40 i think i'm right in saying this at spa came round on the first lap and he was 40 seconds in the lead unbelievable that's unbelievable you know mm. i mean what an amazing talent but he also had some pretty horrific accidents tragically mm. so no wonder he got a bit quiet and insular at certain times do you almost establish a telepathy with somebody you race that much with Yes, of course. The, the, don't forget, though, it, when there's only two of you, which there were for a number of races, uh, sports, you know, world championship as well as Le Mans with Jackie, you never talk to each other. People say, you must have a great relationship with us. I don't even know him because <laughs> he's driving while I'm out and, he, and, I, and the other way around. Yeah. When I'm driving, he's out. So, you know, you never talk. Um, whereas the three of you, you have quite a lot of discussions. But, um, <laughs> you know, we, we never talked. And I didn't get to know him at all well to start with for a long time. And he always kept himself. He was um, very, I would say, introverted. But as the years went by, he opened up a bit. And now we're the closest of friends. He's my closest motor racing friend, probably. Tell me about a rather special day, which was Father's Day, I believe, in 95, where you got to race with your son. How amazing was that? Well, that was the most memorable race. And so when you asked me, just most memorable Le Mans, when you asked me what was the most outstanding, vic but you said victory, unfortunately, so it eliminated that. But yeah. racing with your son uh, or with one son and with Andy Wallace, who without him we couldn't have done it. He's a wonderful, wonderful driver and a great friend. But to drive with your son and finish third on Father's Day and be on the winner's rostrum was absolutely Incredible. unbelievable. And it still today, it still is today. I mean, we should have won that race. I know everybody says that, but they, even when you write, even Gordon Murray says that was our race and we should have won it. But it was one of those things. It was magnificent. And for a while, it was a bit nerve wracking because, you know, you see your son get in that car yeah. time after time in the bucketing rain, which it was from sort of mm. seven at night till like five in the morning. 
was pretty terrifying because you didn't know. And he, I remember when I went to shut the door down on him, he looks up at you like, well, OK, Dad, so what are you going to tell me? Like, what's it like at Tet Rouge? What it's like at Arnage? I mean, you couldn't tell him. I just looked at him and I went, ah, I don't know. And I slammed the door and off he went. Oh, I gosh. couldn't, you know, we used to give each other tips, not him and me, but I would, my teammate, you'd shout in the door, watch out, there's a lot of loose gravel coming out of Mul's arm and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then it's your son, I tell you what, it was pretty horrible, actually. You've got three children. Is he the only one that's that's followed your footsteps? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. All Thank three. Oh, well, no, my, daughter, my daughter did events. I was thinking, I've got three sons. Uh, my daughter, Melanie, it was great. She was doing eventing, you know, on a, on a pony, sort of doing yes. all the... It sounded a bit fancy, eventing, but it was at 16-year-old age. And then and Justin, of course, was doing motocross before he got into cars. And he was pretty good at that. My other son, who's 21 now, thank God he's got the brains of his mother. And he has is, is been doing electrical engineering at Purdue University. And he's he just told me last night he's just got his fourth A plus in mm. four of the major subjects, electroengineering. And last year he did three months in the internship at McLaren, actually, um, on, on hybrid at age 20. So that was fantastic. Amazing. It's quite interesting to see how fathers and sons get on. There was an article in a magazine about it recently about, mm -hmm. you know, the Andrettis and, and Damon and his father and and, mm -hmm. and and so on. Genes mean such a lot. And I see, I get in the car with my son, Sebastian, as I, and he's driven me around certain circuits, and he's just a natural. He just drives magnificently. You hardly have to tell him the way around. I took him around Goodwood on a second lap in my Porsche, and he's driving me, we're coming around the second lap to go up into Madwick, and I said, well, you try and go a little bit, tuck in a little bit tighter. He said, let me do it, Dad, let me find the line. I went, all right, I'll shut up then. He's just it, got it. You, your people have it. Some people don't, when they work at it, and, you know, people say, oh, I read this book, I saw this film. You say, actually, you should just get it and do it. And I don't mean you'll be a great racer. I just mean the way you adapt to driving a car on a racetrack and a field. You can just see their hands and how they work it. Amazing feeling. Right, yeah. so now I want to go on to another part of your life, which is your um, movie career life. Um, so you were in Le Mans and specifically were very close to the icon, Steve McQueen. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about it. It's the strange thing is, when that took place, it was like it was the middle of my career. You know, mm. but it wasn't. It was only after four years or something, or five years, and it went on for so much longer. And I look back now and I go, "Blimey, that was a long time ago." And of course, it was. It was 1970, and again, it's it's just luck, isn't it? The way the ball rolls. I was out of a drive at the end of '69, and in 1970, what are we going to do? So I went up to Formula Two again with Tom Wheatcroft, as I said, and I got a sports car drive as well. Having done that sports car drive at Spa for Jack Swatters, my very first time there on the old circuit, Jack said, you know, I'd like you to work with us at Le Mans. We're going to be making a movie. And he said, yeah, they're going to use my car in the film. However, we did Le Mans. And then, of course, I stayed on afterwards in 1970 and worked on the Steve McQueen movie. Again, it was one of those things. I mean, I was scratching around it, you know, driving it in my own family team. You asked earlier about earning money. Well, well, I mm. never earned a penny until I actually went to Ferrari. And well, I must tell you, when I went to Ferrari, I got five hundred pounds for a Grand Prix and two hundred and fifty for a Formula Two race. Slightly different nowadays. Yes, I, think. I know. Cool, <laughs> <laughs> flying, and they used to give it you in pound notes. What was it like actually living with Steve McQueen, with you and your family? Well, it's funny. I had to get out of the house that I'd rented. And for some reason, I guess it's because we all stayed over longer than they thought with making the movie, because it took longer. 
And suddenly he was out of accommodation. So was I. And I always got on well with him. So we ended up in a house. I guess he paid for it. I can't remember what the cup, the solar productions paid for it. So the two families shared a house for about uh, two weeks. It wasn't very long. I knew him well before, obviously during the film. And basically, to answer your question, I mean, he, he just was one of us. Steve wanted to drive. The only reason he did the film was so he could drive a racing car. It wasn't that he wanted to make a movie about it. He wanted to race at Le Mans. He'd raced at Sebring and finished second, I think, with Peter Revson. He purely wanted to race. And he was, I realized subsequently, that he was actually a really good driver. He was talented. Sifford and I used to time up amongst us. Can you imagine? It was my first time in real big sports cars. I'd done Spa and then Le Mans. But there I was driving it on a daily basis, and a 512 Ferrari or a 917. But Steve loved driving with us. Do you have any particular memories or anecdotes from that time? I mean, obviously, there were loads of stories about the making of the movie. I must tell you one of them which was really regarding riding his Husqvarna and me riding my Yamaha. You have to realise that, you know, we would be on the movie set from sort of 7.30 in the morning till dark at night. We actually did sit around a dining table and have dinner together. We would sort of dash off in the morning. Our wives would still be in bed with the kids. And movie making would finish on the Thursday or Friday night. And then they wouldn't do it over the weekend because I guess they used the track for other things, you know, sort of commercial stuff. So we were free to go off and do our racing. Anyway, there were a few weekends that I did stay because there's no point in rushing off from my little house there where my family were there as well. Steve said, come on. He said, let's go and ride the bike. So I got around to riding this sort of 250 Yamaha and Steve had his Husky 400 or whatever it was. We were riding around. It's all very, if you can imagine them all, when there's no cars there, it's pretty deserted and it's just woods. We were at the back of what we call Solar Village, which I know where that is myself, but I couldn't really describe it to you in the edge of the woods. He was just a cowboy on a bike, and I was trying to learn not to fall off. And I did my best, and eventually we came to the area where there was a big, big sort of high mass of quarry. So Steve said, cool, let's go up there, he said, you know. So he said, but wait here, I'll go and take a look. So he blasts up there on his hut, up he goes, up the hill, probably only, you know, 100 yards from where we stood. He went along and then straight up to the top, disappeared, and then he came back to the top. He said, it's all right. He said, you're lucky. He said, come up here. He said, but you'll have to go back a couple hundred yards and build up some speed. So I went back and I came flying up and I went up and then I suddenly went straight up this slope of sand, uh, quarry stuff. And leaping up there, and when I get to the top, of course, you know, he was calling me on, calling me on, calling me on as I came. And as I went over the top, of course, it dropped away, and it was a garbage pit. And I was in the air with my legs on the pegs, and I'm going, oh, my God. And I suddenly became a really good rider. And I did, <laughs> and I did not fall off. And I landed on the back wheel and kept it open, carried on, and the slowed down, turned around. And he was just standing. It would have made a wonderful photograph. He was standing back on this high bank, just looking down at me, roaring with laughter. It all came about because one day we frightened him to death on the racetrack. And he said, I'll get you back one day. So when he was at the top after this moment, when I'd landed, he sort of just looked at me and said, I got you back. <laughs> and, but that was the sort of guy he was. So were bikes his first love, do you think? Yes, I would say they were. But he did convert you. He did convert me, yeah, because then I ended up doing British Championship Enduros, the Brecon Beacon three-day, and I did events all over Britain with Dave Purley, actually. He and I used to go and ride all over doing these events, Brecon Beacons and two-day and all that sort of thing. I wasn't that good, but I was quite good. I was what they call a clubman. I'm sure so, you were quite good, Derek. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, wonderful days, actually. Fantastic.
What do you think that racing has really taught you as a person and specifically as a driver? <laughs> My God. Big question. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked that, Jodie. That, that's awful. Um, um, there's so many things I could say, and I'm sure there's just one phrase which yeah. I've never even thought about. But, I mean, every day is a new day, I suppose, is probably the only way to look at it. Yeah. You hope. Yeah. You hope it's a new day. I mean, things change so much. The amazing thing is you'll be in the wintertime hoping the season, you know, what am I going to do next year? I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, there's so many years when I nearly quit. And you think about it, and then suddenly you're going to get the phone call, Derek, would you come and drive one of my cars? And you go, oh, my God. And the whole world changes. And yeah. it is terribly exciting because – each year is a different chapter, whereas because you, you don't go in and say, oh, I'm going to work in that office in the middle of Bognor Regis, you know. You're actually out each year at a different place, different, you know, one year it's for Alfa Romeo, next year it's for Ferrari, and the next year it's for Audi or whoever it is, and different personalities, different teammates. It's amazing. Yeah, so it never lucky. gets boring. No, no, never. Oh, no, no. No, I get such a buzz. I mean, I, I just love it, and it's very misty. My wife sort of is sort of quite keen for me to not do it anymore. And I probably yes, possibly won't. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm never happier than when I'm sitting in the cockpit of a car, particularly that car, just driving, you know, you've got 800 horsepower and anybody would adore it, you know, raw power. And I'm so lucky to get that chance. Yeah. So in this podcast series, we run a special theme called One Piece at a Time, asking our guests to select one prized possession to bring to the podcast. And at the end of the series, we'll have this beautiful collection. Uh, it could be a bit of a car, a photograph, an artefact, or something that means something special to you. Um, so we ask this of you, Derek. Um, please tell us what it is and explain about it. Okay, yeah. The first thing that springs to mind would be the first trophy. First thing I ever won, which was at Goodwood in yeah, March the 13th, 1964. And I actually have got this alarm clock, a travelling alarm clock, a leather-bound travelling alarm clock in red. It's got the BARC badge on it and a plaque. And it says, Goodwood members meeting, winner D-Bell, Lotus Ford, 66.48 miles an hour average. And that I have that, and it still sits on my shelf. I don't think I've ever used it. What a wonderful, wonderful chat. It's been so lovely to catch up and hear your stories and um, <laughs> just what an extraordinary, extraordinary life you've had. Just thank you so much for sharing it. Really a real treat. Could listen to you talk all day, oh, honestly. Well, you're very sweet. Keep safe, and I hope we all come out of this somehow and we all have arm's length pints at Jody's pub. Absolutely. Can't that, wait. That is we a definite date. It, yeah, definitely do it. Bye. Well, that was rather magical. It's astonishing. I mean, what a gentleman. We've both said we could listen to him forever, and I really, really could. And you sort of get the feeling the depth, the well of his anecdotes would never mm. run dry. He was an incredible man and an incredible career, and so humble. I He's know. sitting there telling us about how he had Colin Chapman and John Wire and Enzo Ferrari lining up to sign him, and I then know. still talking about it with the modesty as if he didn't realise he had that ability. Just a super cool guy. That's just amazing. I'm just so chuffed we did that. And would love it if you could share your own one piece at a time. Uh, would love to see pictures. We can put them on Instagram or Facebook or you can send it on email. So, Jamesy, I think you have the address for our lovely listeners. I certainly do. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb. That's C-H-U-B-B, -B, collector car. Or for email, 
classic cars, all one word, at chub.com or browse chub.com slash the interviews. Well, I'm going to remember that chat for a very, very long time. A very, very special interview there. Thank you to everyone listening to the latest podcast in the Chubb interview series, brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. Wherever you're listening from around the world, we wish you well and we're sending all of our love. There'll be another episode very, very soon. And to receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review it and spread the word. And don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. So until next time, bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.